The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Blethered, and my guest is Labour MSP Paul Sweeney. We discussed Paul's departure from Westminster and the realities of life during COVID after being an MP. We chat about moving to Holyrood to serve in the Scottish Parliament and pushing for real change in Scottish politics. And we talk about the need for alliances and communities if we want to see real progression. This episode is brought to you by Debt Experts Don't Fret About Debt. If you're struggling with debt and you would like a free chat with an impartial advisor to discuss your options or to see how you can lower your monthly repayments towards debt, visit don'tfretaboutdebt.net forward slash blethered. You can also listen to my episode with Don't Fret About Debt Senior Debt Advisor Tommy Gallagher, where we discuss taking back control of your debt and the various solutions available. Don't fret about debt, offer all statutory debt solutions in Scotland, helping you to make an informed choice. Take the first step to dealing with your debt today. Free advice is also available from the Money Advice Service. Cheers. So last time we spoke, your Labour MP, well... Not the last time we spoke, but the last time we spoke on here, your Labour MP for Glasgow North East. Hell of a lot has happened in between. Where where do we start? Well, well, um, I think British politics in general has been a bit of a bucking bronco, uh, and it's <laughs> I fell off. Yeah, I thought it's been quite quiet. Kind of man- managed to clamber back onto it, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I think it's just a reflection of how uh, you know our, our current situation has been so volatile, and you know. It being at the cold face of it, you know, mm-hmm. my fortunes have ebbed and flowed with how things have played out in recent years, you know. So it's been a tough, a tough uh, experience personally, but also I think it's made me a better person mm-hmm. um, in a number of ways. Um, I, I never actually expected to get elected in 2017. It was I was 16 to one at the bookies, you know. So the whole thing was a bit of an Alice in Wonderland experience. Mm-hmm. I was expecting to go back to my old job on the Monday, not to end up in the House of Commons. Well, what we can do that we'll anchor ourselves from the, the general election in December 2019. You lost your seat by just 2,548 votes, which is a very slim margin. Before we look at what came after, let's chat about what, what was coming before. How much had you settled in? I'm kind of going from when, when we first spoke. When was that? Was that 20... I can't even remember I think when it was. I the summer this. of 2019. Summer of 2019. Yeah. Well, maybe actually earlier. Let me check. I think it was April. April, was it? Uh-huh. If anybody wants to hear that, it was quite an interesting discussion. It's over two parts. We talked about a whole load of things, life. We kind of argued a wee bit about politics and independence, but it was, it was a good chat. But after that, then it was quite a dramatic six months because you had, well, I mean, well, you had um, Brexit thing was kicking off. Boris Johnson prorogued Parliament. I was there that night. I suppose we could talk That's about right. it. Remember we had dinner? That's right. And I missed an, I missed an appointment with Martin Geisler. I had to dash <laughs> I, I down to the, uh, the green to do an interview. Well, I just sat beside <laughs> Theresa May. Having, I had to sit beside Theresa May having something to eat. What's that wee guy, that wee Tory that wears the wig? What's his oh, name again? Oh, Fabricant. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He was there as well. Aye. And he kept looking at me because I was looking at his hair. And it was a, <laughs> a Mexican standoff. 
You should have just like rubbed a balloon or something. <laughs> <laughs> but that at that point, that that was mental. Like that that was nuts because I'm sitting in Parliament, sitting not even in the the public gallery, sitting actually in the chamber, kind of watching all this unfold. Uh, what did you think at that point? Did you think could you have foreseen that you would have lost your seat because then everything that came after that was a bit nuts? I mean, when I got elected, I was only I only got elected with a majority of 242. That was a number that was tattooed on my forehead. You know? <laughs> um, and the context was this hung parliament, as it was mm. you know, called, where there was a, no majority for the Tories and they had to do this deal with the DUP to survive. And when you just saw Theresa May constantly getting smashed mm. on all these um, votes to do with the Brexit deal, you realised that this was going nowhere. It was like an angry blue bottle against a window. Mm-hmm. You know, this parliament is like a, you know, actually starting to be a pressure cooker and the energy that's building up is going to have to be discharged somehow. Um, and I suppose my efforts in parliament were designed to try and let the air out the tyres slowly mm-hmm. rather than it blowing out, you know, um, and unfortunately blew out. <laughs> um, I had, I was working with groups in Parliament trying to promote the idea that we should have um, a Brexit deal put forward and then have a confirmatory like referendum mm-hmm. so the British people could go, this is the actual nuts and bolts, the terms and conditions of this proposal that you voted for in principle in 2016. Final say, you know, do you mm-hmm. really want it or do you want to walk, walk, walk back from it? Unfortunately, that wasn't achievable because of the constant um, impasse in the parliament. Just the numbers in parliament weren't reflective of being able to achieve it. There was these things called indicative votes where people were offered choices on like whether you want to stay in the single market, mm-hmm. single market customs union, um, have a referendum on the deal, etc. And all of these things, never, not one of them got a majority. So it, it was getting to a point where people were like, this is going nowhere. And the clock's ticking down to the exit. You mm-hmm. know, there was a transition period that was a deadline to it. Um, and it was extended, obviously, um, at one point. And then there was also this constraint whereby you couldn't bring back the deal again to be voted on because mm-hmm. there's a rule in Parliament that once you've voted on something in one session of Parliament, you can't bring the same thing back to get voted on again because Parliament's already t- said to the government, this yeah. is what we think. So there was all these, it became a bit of a Rubik's Cube, you know, and it just ended up, unfortunately, rather than us forcing the government into a position where they had to concede um, a referendum, or there could have even been a minority government formed of a Labour plus other parties and even rebels from the Tories, that was never actually looked at seriously. Um, So you ended up just in a real fix. It was a combination of every possible thing that could have went wrong went wrong Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know and then ultimately what happened was um, the Liberal Democrats get very carried away with themselves because they saw the polling looking very good for them and they decided they wanted to push the button on an early election because they thought even though it would likely return a Tory majority that they would recover lots of seats Was Jo Swinson she was the leader (laughs) of the Lib Dems at that point wasn't she? Yeah she was the leader Um, Ah, So that went well for her eh? No, she, it was a proper mastermind to your scant's effort, wasn't it? You know, it was a uh, leader of the Liberal Democrats to not even be an MP anymore. Mm. You know, so it was probably the most spectacular collapse of a right. party leader in recent memory. See, when, when I think I watched the I watched the results 
drunk in Barcelona. Hmm. It was like December, like watching. He probably it needed if, to be drunk. You know? I know. Watching uh, it as if I was watching Eurovision. Right. Um, it was absolutely brutal. See when when it happened, it must have. Well, first of all, talk me through the the initial feelings. Well, but, I mean, I was still hopeful that we could do something to salvage um, a referendum. I didn't want an election because I knew that it would be disastrous for Labour mm. uh, and could certainly possibly include losing my own seat because of the situation. So I was like, why would you give your enemy what they want? The Tories want the election, they're begging for the election. Yeah. Why on earth would you walk into it then? It's like a kamikaze thing, you know, and it was purely Liberal Democrat arrogance that led into this. Um, I'd also say, quite frankly, SNP opportunism as well. Let's remember, they didn't have any... Like staking this working out, hmm. you know, chaos was useful yeah. for their objective. You know what I mean? So they were in the end quite happy to do the calculation. Let's blow up and see what happens. Yeah. You know, because uh, they were looking at the polling as well, and they were like, "Well, we're likely to gain seats in Scotland, yeah. so we're quite happy." Plus, maximum chaos, Tory majority in England, and you know, this hard Brexit is highly likely to increase tensions. Yeah, I used to. Pre- I remember saying. I think it was after the Scottish referendum 2014. And at the time, quite naively, I was saying, well, hopefully it'll be, you know, a Tory landslide at the election. Hopefully it'll be Brexit. Hopefully it'll be more chaos because from chaos will surely will come some order. I think I had a bit more... It's um, a it's a very it's a very classic Marxist Leninist approach where you go um, blow it up, blow this this current system up, and the workers will find their way. You know, aye, and, and, it, and, it, and, it, and there's a, there's maybe sometimes a logic to it. Um, now we're but, in the midst of it. I find myself going, "Fuck's sake!" Like ten times a day. Like we've literally just sat before yeah. we came in here chatting about just how mental the whole world is and the the current British system uh, and and which and just the way things are in general. I'm thinking, I find myself saying. Uh, honestly, if you could wave a magic wand, I'd be like, David Cameron and George Osborne, like, I'll take that. Because like, that now seems like a pure utopia compared yeah, to what we're living in. But you have to remember the origins of that, that at no point um, did they have the legitimacy to do what they did Yeah, in that sense. And the referendum that they put forward was the most extreme failure of leadership because what they actually did was offer a punch bag to people who had been beaten on for mm-hmm. a long time and said, don't punch this bag, yeah. even though it really hurt us. What you need to do is not punch the bag and go back and do whatever you're doing, little people. Mm. And of course, in that context, the provocation, of course people are going to punch it. You know, communities that have been ravaged by Thatcherism, mm-hmm. dignity, income, wealth, ripped out of their communities. You know, there was a lot of alienation out there. And people associated it, however mistakenly or whatever, or legitimately associated with the establishment's telling us not to do this thing. So fuck that. Let's go and, yeah. and punch on the guy. You know, punch the man, punch the establishment. And the parallels in that sense are actually quite similar to 2014. Because when you're going around housing schemes in Glasgow, the overwhelming vibe you were getting on the doors was, number one, I've got no stake in this situation at the moment. Won't Can't get any worse, mate. Might as well go for it. Mm. Um, and also, what are you guys doing siding with the status quo? Why aren't you on our side, mm. as in Labour? You know, and that was a terrible situation for the party to be in. And it happened again with Brexit. And a lot of these communities are saying, why is Labour trying to screw us out of what we voted for? Mm. You know what I mean? So this, the dynamics were very similar. And the problem that 
obviously the Labour Party has is that it's not really operating on a like a kind of you know these are where the borders of the country should be. It's more about how the working class people achieve material improvements. You know what I mean? So it wasn't really something that we were geared up as a party ideologically to confront because mm -hmm. it was coming almost at, at ninety degrees to what we were all about. So it split a lot of our voters up because it wasn't what unifies our people, mm -hmm. which is about how do we come together to win improvements for the working class, you know? And there was a big, obviously, disagreement about the identity of the country and where it should go. And a lot of that anger came out of the current system doesn't work for us. And I can totally understand that. I mean, one of the things I drew comfort from was even in the depths of 2019 that a majority of people in the country actually still voted for progressive parties, um, even in England. Mm. Um, so if you add up the Liberal Democrats, I suppose if you put out a push, Liberal Democrats, Greens and Labour, um, there was actually a majority of voters in England voted for those parties as opposed to the Tories and the Brexit party. But the way that the parliamentary system works in Britain, which greatly distorts how actually people vote, yeah. you end up with a Tory majority. You know, so that's a big challenge we've got to deal with in the country. Um, you know, that we end up with MPs that only a minority of their constituents want. Mm. You know what I mean? So um, that's the tricky situation See, that like we need to deal with. Dealing with a difficult system like that, and obviously as you're mentioning there, how angry the, the collection of nations are as a whole and how fractured things were. Was there any point that you felt relieved when you? Because at this point, at, at in that point in December, nobody could have possibly seen what was coming. Yeah, I, I think it's probably as close as you'll come to feeling like those England players felt losing on penalties at the at the Euros final. You know, because I actually, uh, I mean, I just I'd pretty much sacrificed everything else in my life to devote myself to working in that community. Yeah in Glasgow North East for the whole time I was there. I recognised how tight things were, how precious the opportunity was to actually represent the area that you were brought up in in Parliament. It was a kind of like unreal opportunity. Mm. So I kind of valued it to the extent where I kind of devoted myself to doing it. it significant personal cost in terms of relationships, family. Mm. You know, I was kind of estranged from a lot of people because I was so focused on going to everything I could to, mm -hmm. to support the community. Um, but... And I, and I suppose I felt, surely this will pay off. You know, at the end of the day, people will realise I've done a lot yeah. of work. You know, it's like selfish perhaps. But I also was very aware that only a minority, a very small minority of people will vote based on who the local MP is, especially when they've only been around a couple of years. Mm. Um, you know, you may get away with it if you've been the MP for like decades and you're well known locally. Yeah. Like, you know, as much as I tried to build up that head of steam, I only had the like, two years you know so you know it's like realistically you're never going to make the impact that you could over a longer period of time but also um given how crazy things were nationally people weren't going into a polling station thinking who's the local mp and who's the best person mm -hmm. they're thinking <clears throat> this brexit scenario you know constitution is you know scotland's position in the uk who the party leaders were who's the most compelling leader you know so these were the calculations people are making. They're not going in looking at the names on the ballot paper. They're looking at the party logos. Ah, you're swimming against the tide of party politics. Yeah, there's actually a there's actually a there's a theory. It was it's, they call them sophologists. Sophologists, who are people who study elections. It's mm -hmm. a statistical number cruncher. So like John Curtis, so you might right, you know yeah. familiar with the guy, the specs and mm -hmm. the kind of crazy hair that you see on telly all the time. <laughs> so they they have a theory that. Uh, a local performance, a local campaign, like a local MP, can influence an election by up to 3% either way. 
So if you're crap, that will maybe depress your party's vote by 3%. And if you're mm-hmm. really good, that might inflate your party's vote by 3% because that's a share of people who are going to that guy was really good even though I don't like his party or I don't like some of the issues. I'll, I think he's good anyway. Yeah. You know, so, um, or she, he or she. But like, um, so what I took some solace from was that even though I lost the, the seat because it's first past the post, winner takes all, um, that's just how the system works, um, that the swing against Labour in Glasgow was like 7%. But in my seat, it was only 3%. Mm-hmm. So I actually felt I'd done everything I could have done to have like, pushed the tide back as much as I could have. Yeah. But I, I still wasn't enough I, and I fell off the cliff. You know, so, um, it, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think... I kind of took some solace after looking at it. Obviously, it was devastating. I was actually quite bullish about it because I, there was a big polling company that was studying different constituencies. And one of those constituencies that were studying in Britain was mine. And in November, they came back to saying, actually, locally, the polling's looking good for you. You're going you're gonna to hold your seat. And then the first week of December, they came back and said, sorry, there's been a swing mm-hmm. uh, in the last couple that? of weeks. I think it's just that people were actually, despite Labour and SNP being quite a bitter uh, enemies, if you like, or political opponents, uh, it's actually because we're we're chasing after the affections of the same voters. Mm-hmm. And for those voters, they're actually not seeing a huge journey in switching between the SNP and Labour. They're going, a lot of doors you would go to, they're like, uh, well, I'm, you know, I'm between the two. You know, I'll, you know, I'll figure it out. And some people were Labour, or soft labour, you know, and they switched to, you know, it was almost a, you know, they would have, they would have um, made the made the decision on the day, you know, that kind of thing. Or you were going back to doors who'd previously told you a couple of weeks ago they were labour, mm. and they were telling you they weren't labour anymore. You See, know, I, f- I find that really hard to understand because, I, I mean, most people vote in SNP. I would probably argue that they're doing so because they, they see it as a means to an end they want independence and they feel that's the best way but I'm, I'm kind of confused as to how you can just go oh, I'm kind of between the two because essentially constitutionally anyway they're diametrically opposed I think if you feel strongly about the constitution that will definitely be a bigger influence mm. but for a lot of people, I mean there's maybe like 25% of people out there who, who are like mad for one thing or the other Um well I'd say there's probably, let me think Probably, well, just under half the country is probably either militantly um, nationalist or militantly unionist. Mm-hmm. And that's where the Tories have galvanised a lot of support in Scotland yeah. because they've built that whole kind of staunch uh, identity-based unionism up. Yeah. Whereas, you know, there's a... And I think Alba tried to do that with the, you know, the nationalist vote. That it's obviously not, it's really. obviously not has been successful, clearly, because there's, 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 it's a crowded field in that sense. <laughs> yeah. There's already an established party there. But... Um, I think for for a lot of working class people, particularly in Glasgow, in a city with a lot of strong socialist and left wing tradition, um, it's a different dynamic where people are like, you know, the SNP's credentials were very much that we are now the kind of party that Labour used to be, mm-hmm. or you know that was the vibe they were giving off. Whereas Corbynism in twenty seventeen um, showed that maybe Labour had a resurgence in that sense of traditional socialist values etc so people were like actually this is what I wanted to hear from Labour a long time you know so I'm actually interested this is something that's interesting to me so I think there was definitely a lot of people out there who were like that um, another dynamic to think about is turnout was up uh, as well so what you actually saw was a huge spike in turnout in 2015 coming off the back of the referendum mm-hmm. Um, because people were like, we get cheated out. Or the, is, is the, a lot of people saw it rightly or wrongly. We get cheated out of what we wanted for coming out to fucking 
you know, smash the system. Come out swinging, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that was there was a there was a strong rebound from the referendum in 2015, which is which which resulted in the the, the kind of spectacular results for the SNP. Um, and then in 2017, there wasn't the same dynamic driving it, you know. So people, a lot of people, just didn't turn out. There was a there was a particularly in working class communities, people didn't really engage with uh, voting again. Biggest challenge is actually to get people to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, so by default, the number of people turning out went down. The Labour vote stayed pretty static. The, the SNP vote was the one that was jumping Flip up and you, down. Yeah. So when the SNP vote was down, the Labour vote was staying still or va- basically sort of staying still. So the you know Glasgow North East was one of the seats that poked back through the surface. Yeah, again, <laughs> you know, and that's how it worked. But in 2019, particularly because of Brexit, the whole vibe about stop Boris, uh, reverse Brexit, however disingenuous that campaign might have been because it mm. didn't do either, uh, the sea level came back up again. Uh, and I was one of the people that obviously fell back again. You know, of it. So so that's just how it works. You know, It was obviously devastating because I actually genuinely, when I was out doing the doors, felt it was good. Um, I actually vividly remember being up at All Saints uh, High School in, in Bermulloch um, getting a guy out of a taxi at the polling station at like five to ten, like so the polls closed at ten, and like he was coming out, and I was like, "How did you vote?" And he was like, "Voted for you, mate." And I was like, "Yes, yeah, so let's get a picture and all that." And I was like, <laughs> you know, and then jumped in the cars because it's it was like, like images that precede unfortunate events. Yeah, you know, but I was just, you know, everybody's obviously hyped up because yeah. you're trying to win. You know, I mean, you know, you're just like fucking everybody, you know, hit the doors. Let's get a la- squeeze every last vote mm-hmm. out of it. You know, so you're racing against the clock. There's like an adrenaline rush. Jumped back in the cars and we're like, right, stuck like the iPlayer on your phone and we're waiting for the exit poll to hit. So it yeah. goes 10 o'clock and then the thing f- pops up and you just see the bar gr- the bar chart hit the screen and you're just like, <laughs> <laughs> like it's like, you know, absolute concrete wall yeah. emotionally. You uh-huh. know, so you're just like, one minute you're obviously looking at Tory Labour, you know, so you're saying uh, that's him got a majority, this mm-hmm. is out of reach now. It's, you know, this is, game's yeah. a bogey. Brexit's happening and everything else but then your eye goes to the right and looks at the SNP number and you're like shit also <laughs> so, you're like, so that doesn't look good for so it was up at like whatever 50 odd vote, uh, seats again so like I was like well that's me pumped Before, you know? I mean, I've, so, uh, I've got a whole load of questions with what then came after that but one one question that's kind of springing to mind might be quite difficult for you to answer is that if the, the Scottish electorate has spoken so consistently and, and continuously is voting for SNP, which to me would suggest the majority is, is voting for independence. Do you ever see yourself in a position where you would say, okay, Scottish Labour is going to then just adapt to that and, and basically to provide what the electorate seemed to be voting for? Because I feel like there would be a real resurgence in popularity and votes if, if that was there's, to be the case. It's a fair, it's a fair point. Um, there's... It's an interesting contrast because on one hand you saw the results in 2019 mm. um, but what it actually produced was around 45% of Scottish voters voting for the SNP but they won like 80% of the seats. Mm-hmm. You know, it's actually the most spectacular distortion. Um, you know, I talked about that system that produces Tory majorities. It actually is even more distorted in Scotland. Um, and then you saw that play again. You saw a, a contrast with the recent Scottish elections where the SNP didn't win a majority of seats because it's a more proportional system. Um, that doesn't mean that there's not an issue that we need to grasp and that there's no point in putting your head in the sand about the issue because it's not going away at the moment. Uh, and I, don't, I doubt it ever really will. Um, and what we've got is basically an impasse. Uh, it doesn't 
I mean, and I understand exasperation with it because a lot of people, certainly from my persuasion, are eager to get on to issue-based politics, i.e. how do we change our system of taxation, our political and economic structures to improve the conditions of the working class. And a lot of people see the whole debate about the Constitution as a, a distraction that sucks energy away from those focus mm. those focus points. Um, and a lot of people just get very angry that this is this doesn't seem to go away. People are like, get over it. It's been dealt with. I can kind of sympathise with that reaction. However, I can also sympathise with people going, we keep getting this Tory government. We can't continue like this. It's a it's a it's a it's an impasse. So both are valid, you know, reactions to frustration. And it, the question then is, how does Labour constructively deal with it and challenge those frustrations? It doesn't do is any good to just sort of deny that they exist. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you work constructively with it? A lot of the debate has been focused around a rather referendum. My view is, I think the referendum is actually not necessarily helpful because we've seen how these simplistic options can lead to really difficult outcomes. So Brexit was leave or remain, and then you saw what the hell does leave actually mean? Mm-hmm. So would you, know, you suggest that there was a far more detailed and nuanced yeah. series of questions? What? Well, it's more, as a country, we need to figure out what we're actually meaning by these things. So we need to actually... I mean, for me, it would be get the Tories to fuck. Is, is <laughs> the yes or no? That it, To me, it's that simple. You know, I actually said... And I know it's not, but that well, is kind of how I would I, see people I see was it. Tr- actually, it's quite funny, because I was... I did a, 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 after I lost my seat, I, I did a, a bit of work for Angela Reno when she was running for deputy leader of the Labour Party. Yeah. And I was, she was up and doing hustings in, in Glasgow in like March, I think. Well, it was just before the pandemic kind of hit, like February maybe. Mm. And um, and I, I was in, I was like trying to kind of get her into the hip mindset. I was like, how, how is this working? Why do working class people want a separate country? And I was like, I was like, right, get yourself into the mindset that you're in Manchester, right? And you're in your local community, working class community in Manchester where you grew up. And somebody turned up and said, how about we vote for this? And then we never have another Tory government again. And that kind of was the light bulb moment for her, yeah. where she was like, "Ah, right, I see what you mean. Yeah. I'd fucking vote for that." You know, <laughs> so like, you know, so, but I was like, it's not so simple though. You know, yeah. it's not so simple because, at the end of the day, there is all sorts of complexities associated with it that people not necessarily are honestly engaging. Oh, sorry, parties aren't honestly engaging with, and people aren't necessarily fully aware of, and that's where I get concerned. I totally understand the impulse. I actually. Can I, sure I, actually, I actually share the impulse yeah. I really want to get rid of the Tories and if I thought it was so straightforward that we can just pull the ejector seat and, and get to fuck mm-hmm. uh, that would be an easy choice for me to make yeah. you know and also if I genuinely thought it would make the country richer I would agree you know on balance that's probably now at the point where we need to think about it because efforts to steer the ship away from the cliffs have failed I don't think it's as simple as that though um, and I think Brexit needs to be a salutary lesson in that regard because uh, we just saw how people's thoughts about how simple it would be, how productive it would be, didn't play it that way. And ultimately now we're faced with a starker choice because to rejoin, like to join the EU as a separate country, you would need to have a hard border between England and Scotland and you would also need to have a separate currency. Um, these aren't easy things to deal with mm. and nobody's actually talked through how that would work yet. I'm not saying it couldn't work. I'm just saying we need to actually understand what the technicalities of that would be. And that's the the, the debate has never confronted that yet. 
what we're stuck on at the moment is yes or no to actually having a referendum. And I think we need to figure these issues out first before we start. If you look at the contrast with the 1990s when we had the, the devolution referendum, the country had spent about 15 years working through what devolution meant mm -hmm. and all parties were involved in shaping it. So there was negotiations, there was the Scottish Constitutional Convention, there was a, there, there was a, you know, the SM, well, the SNP kind of pulled out of it, but there were SNP representatives there. There was all parties talking about how this would work, what the electoral system would be, how the parliament would be constructed, you know, what powers would be involved. All of that was worked out before the referendum. So the point you got to the referendum, it was kind of like just you a formality. New the T's and C's. Well, yeah, aye, exactly. It was worked out more or less down to the finest details. Plus, like that's why the vote ended up like 70% in favour because everything had been worked out beforehand. Uh, and there was a consensus that it developed. So the, the referendum wasn't used as a battering ram. It was used more as a rubber stamp. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think that the problem we've had with the recent referendums is there's been a much, it's almost like a cage match, you know, lock everybody in the cage and no, you know, last man standing, yeah. you know, and that's not necessarily a, a healthy thing in a democracy. You know what I mean? Uh, it, it, it really produces the sort of tensions that we've seen play Certainly out. Certainly not years. conducive to any progress when everybody's pulling in yeah. multiple different and, directions. And what I would say as well is what you're seeing in Scottish elections is an increasing polarisation. So, you know, you're seeing the Tories hardening up this very, very, kind of staunch, quite aggressive brand of unionism that's quite akin to kind of what we've seen in in, in Ireland. And you're then seeing this kind of um, kind of uh, nationalism that's not got the same dynamics in that sense of it being virulent or, or particularly aggressive, but, but it, there are elements of it that are quite aggressive. Um, it, Such it, as... Know, well, I mean, you see what's going on with the Alba party. You know, there's a kind of blood and soil tinge to it. It's not necessarily as mainstream, but I think, um, uh, yeah, I think, I think, I think you're, 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 you do get this, um, you do get this polarisation. And I think Scotland is quite a tense, it's a, it's a tense split. So neither side's going to be sustainable and we don't want to erupt into a situation that's going to get out of control. So I think there does need to be a, a and it, whilst it suits both the Tories and the SNP to, to sort of stoke it, um, I don't think it's sustainable, so we do need to come through. And I think Labour, <clears throat> Labour might have a role to play in that, in terms of let's be clear about what we're trying to achieve as a country. We want socialist outcomes. We want to improve the conditions of the working class. We're not necessarily hardwired into um, any particular constitutional outcome. However, we agree that the status quo is unsustainable. Um, and I would argue that Labour itself has to present an ultimatum to the, the British government to say that unless you engage with reform, this is going to break up. Yeah, see what you're saying with the Albert Party, I don't think they can be lumped in as being part of this sort of broad nationalism as we saw. Oh, I don't think they are at the all. The amount of and votes that, that they had. Yeah, I don't think they are. But And I think that... So I, 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 think, would, I that, would keep them as, a, as an aside... I think you're right, but I think there's there's there is a an element um of of bigotry in both sides uh that I think is problematic. Mm. Um I would say that it that it, it, it definitely exists in both parts whether whether one vastly outweighs the other, I suppose, is a I, I matter of personal opinion. I, I don't know. You know, certainly I've blocked about five thousand Twitter accounts, you know, <laughs> in, in my experience. Both I mean and I get it from both sides. You know, I've had attacks from 
uh, what I would call Brit nuts. Mm. Uh, you know, um, you know, for example, after I I was heavily involved in helping to thwart the um, Don raid in Paul Shields yeah. uh, a few months ago, uh, I was subjected to basically a week of sustained abuse by British nationalists uh, who were, you know. You can just, you can. I mean, I can. You yeah, know, you can. can you, you, you can. You can imagine the slew of accounts. You yeah. know, Union Jacks in the in the address and other, you know, other associated symbology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, on the other hand, I've had surges and pylons from from nationalists as well for various things. You know, my my view is that the limit maximum bamo. You know, block and move on. <laughs> you know, I, I just I, my life. you know I, I don't entertain their shit anymore. Yeah, you know, just... so I I just do my thing. I speak about what I'm interested mm-hmm. in, and they're not entitled to my attention. You know, so uh, so that's just how that's just how I play things now. Yeah. Um, what I'm concerned about is the the the, the background noise that they create is quite. You know, it can actually seriously wind people up. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's not so much that they, it's not about their people's views on it is the fact that they can stoke and they can create highly provocative situations in our public discussions, particularly online, that can actually have a radicalising effect. How lo- how often can you lose the, you know, it's very easy to lose your temper with that kind of provocation. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I worry about that kind of, a, you know, just that infecting our, our debate, our it's, discussions. It's such a, it's such a, I don't even know the term, but it's such a 50-50 in, in the sense that social media has been great for the debunking of, of disinformation or myths, but also the vacuums that it creates can also then just perpetuate those those myths anyway. Well, what, 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 what its biggest risk is that you can, it gives you the options to effectively, the, the algorithms that it produces effectively curates your own little world. Yeah, your own wee bubble. You I know, mean, so based you, on social media, I was convinced it was going to be 90% yes for 2014. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. And I learned the hard way that it's not how it works. Yeah, you know, and that's, that's a probably a good example of a sudden correction. Same with, uh, <clears> you know, <throat> Labour in 2019. You know, I thought it was going to be all right because uh, yeah. I was seeing all this positivity from young people who inhabit social media and it, you end up in an echo chamber and then suddenly, you know, reality lands about 100 miles away from where you thought it would be. Mm. You know, so I, I think there's definitely um, something to be considered in that. There's, 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 there's obviously other issues with social media that it leaves as wide open to manipulation by foreign actors as well. There was there was an issue around, for example, the racism directed at the England players and mm-hmm. stuff like that. You know, it it presents itself in a number of different ways where malicious actors can seek to sow division, sow chaos, yeah, uh, in our in our public life. That is a big issue we need to deal with, uh, and just having a sort of hands off, you know, lacy fair approach about it isn't really sustainable because it could produce really dangerous outcomes in reality you, you did mention that you said the issue won't go away anytime soon I feel like the issue would it would deflate somewhat if we saw Labour government now I'm not going to ask you for a comment on this I'm not going to put you in a um, this difficult position but my stance is if there was a Labour leader who wasn't you know, Walter the Softy combined with Luke Warm Porridge that's kind of the vibe I get for Keir Starmer some of the I mean some of the stances he's taken on things he's he's hardly a very oppositional Um it then makes me wonder, does Scottish Labour have to really distance itself and be a, a totally separate entity? Because, I mean, I don't have them to hand, but some of the, even his comments on the um, on the Afghan situation, just constantly look and just think, your ass must be full of scales, pal, because you're just never off the fence. Um, 
you I mean you can you can give comment or you can you can pass by and that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna harangue you too much because I understand it puts you in a position. There's an important point. Actually there was a really interesting point that was made the other day that is people were leaving the Labour Party because they treat it like a transactional thing. A lot of people do with political parties. You know, it's seen as almost like um this no longer reflects my ideals or that this policy or something's changed, therefore I'm withdrawing my my subscription. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's a Netflix subscription or something or a, or National Geographic. You know, but, but hear me out. So <laughs> so I, I've never viewed politics like that. I actually got into politics because I was really frustrated by Labour uh, and local certain local representatives mm-hmm. who I probably best not name uh about their attitude to certain things that were quite ambivalent about things I was really caring about in the community. Um, I, but I never viewed labour as as a sort of, subs- you know, a, a subscription exercise. What, what I, I've never really viewed party politics like that, and maybe I'm quite unusual in that sense. Uh, I think our whole society is constructed in a sort of material terms, so it's like you know this, this brand. I, I'm endorsing this brand. Uh, you know, supporting this brand or whatever. I've never really seen politics like that, and I think a lot of people do though. Um, for me, Labour is the, for better or worse, is the only political force capable of delivering progressive change in Britain as a whole. Therefore, regardless of how flawed it might be, I have a consistent interest in it being successful, and my interests lie in influencing this party, in in inside it to move it in the direction I wish. So building coalitions with people within the party to win policy ch- changes. For example, I'm running a big campaign across the party just now to get the party to back proportional representation. At the, you know, If we are able to win an election, I'm also supporting the idea of a progressive alliance so that we stand, you know, co- we coordinate our candidates um, at the next election. So, for example, where the Liberal Democrats are best placed to beat the Tory candidate, we allow that to happen, mm-hmm. give them a clear shot at it, etc. Do you see that ever actually coming in to, well, to force the proportional representation in well, Westminster? I, I do, because it, if it doesn't, then the future of the UK is is is, is, is at stake. And let me, let me make this point Is that you. not like Turkey's voting for Christmas if the Tories were to back that? They don't need the Tories to back it. We need a majority of progressive MPs to back it. We'd need to win the next election on first past the post. Mm. We need to win an election on first past the post, but it has to be done with a with an agreement amongst the progressive parties that we smash first past the post thereafter mm. and replace it with a new system, which was a you know huge strategic error of the last Labour government not to do that. Um, for example, if Labour were to win the exact same share of the votes as it did in 1997 when they had the landslide, we would still fall short of a majority today because of the way the boundaries have changed and the way demographics have shifted. Right, okay. So that just shows you how things have moved on so mm-hmm. much. Like the whole the whole game's changed. Also, with the collapse of the Liberal Democrats after the coalition in twenty fifteen, uh, they fell away big big time because of the betrayal. They felt, particularly with students and stuff like that, with mm-hmm. the tuition fees and stuff. So we actually relied on the Liberal Democrats winning loads of seats, particularly in like Devon and the West Country, um, to box in the Tories basically, and that enabled Labour to win seats enough to win a majority because the Lib Dems basically collapsed. That space was filled with Tories, you know. So there is a need to hack the system in order to win an election and then replace it with first past the post, if replace first past the post with a proportional system. So I'm 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 trying to win these changes within the party, you know. So for better or worse, 
you know, even though I might have disagreements from time to time with the leaders, or you know, for example, I've had frustrations over drug policy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, within Labour, uh, but I'm working constructively to try and move that in the right direction. I don't see any, I don't see how any of our interests are served in basically withdrawing support because it just emboldens those who don't want to see the changes happen. You get what I mean? Yeah. I know it's slightly different in Scotland because there was seen as an alternative vehicle for progressive change, which um, was the SNP. So in that sense, it was easier for people to switch their support to a vehicle that they thought was more able to achieve that. Um, but I've never personally viewed it as a particularly progressive party, but that's that's maybe a matter of disagreement. Uh, you know, especially with Alex Salmond as a leader at the time. But there we go. So, uh, so, <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I still have my views about their attitude towards things like the Growth Commission and mm-hmm. Charlotte Street Partners, this dodgy lobbying company that they use uh, to drive a lot of their policy making and there's a lot of big business interests which we've seen over the tensions of the Campbell Oil Field, etc. Uh, you know, so there are tensions within that. It's a populist party, you know, and it's been highly successful at building coalitions that are very broad, mm-hmm. but I don't necessarily think it's a, a party of the working class or socialism. But, you know, so that's that's point of disagreement. But I think from Britain as a whole, our interests are best served in being involved in this movement. And I think it's actually a symptom of a decline in working class political education. A hundred years ago, you'd have mass work, mass industrial workplaces, very dense urban communities. And you'd have, you know, you had things like socialist Sunday schools in, in Glasgow. So, you know, you'd have, you'd have people going to events. There was, you know, all the big political parties had public halls in Glasgow. So in Springburn, for example, the Labour Party had a big public hall. Um, Bridgeton, places like that, there would actually be the Independent Labour Party, the Communist Party, the you know the Labour Party, even the I think the Conservative Party actually had these kind of facilities. So it was mass participation in politics. There were trade unions, there were institutions that people engaged with and built political power out of them. That's how working class people. The whole purpose of the Labour Party was to send working class people into the Parliament uh, to redress the balance because it was full of aristocrats and, mm-hmm. and rich millionaires and stuff. You never used to get paid money to be in Parliament. You had to be privately wealthy. The reason Parliament doesn't sit in the morning was because the gentleman could go to the city and do the stockbroking in the morning and then go to the Parliament in the afternoon. Okay, okay. You know, that's the whole system is set up for that. Yeah. You know, the whole idea of Labour's creation was to start to build an infrastructure to send working class people into the Parliament to try and change things, as opposed to revolutionary change, mm-hmm. you know, which happened in Russia and, and stuff like that. So, so um, the whole system was geared up for that. As we've seen over, you know, decades with deindustrialization, the removal of mass trade union participation, mass, mass political party participation, the infrastructure to to build that power base, to educate working class people mm-hmm. about what this was about, has kind of disappeared, become a more consumerist thing. So it's like, you know, I'll look online, I'll read articles, and I'll like, you know, pick a party that I want to back, like I'm back in a racehorse, <laughs> you know, or or a, as a subscription to a to a podcast or a, or, a, or a magazine or something, you know, and I withdraw my support in a kind of transactional way. So I've never seen politics like that. I guess it's easy for me to say that because that's my view of it. It's not how most people would think of politics. But I've, see, I've, I, I, get I, see what I get what you're saying about it not being transactional, but I think when some of the glaring inconsistencies or contradictions of, of general decency are so visible, again, I would say from the from the party leader, I think people, I, I get. I do get what you're saying, but I think in, in a large amount of cases, people will be looking and going, you, you, you're just no for me. I think it's even just the fact that he's not actually achieving anything. I mean, I think, I think Keir Starmer is a decent man, having personally met him and know him. Uh, I think, yeah, there's there, there's work to be done. Uh, I think he's not a naturally 
reticent guy. He's a very intelligent guy. He's not a charismatic guy. Mm. Uh, he probably lacks star power, you know. Certainly Blair, whatever you think about him in terms of his politics, had charisma. And if you come into a room, you'd be kind of captivated by yeah. his ability. God, even you Gordon know. Brown's charismatic. I saw him, and people might be like, what? There is no way that that can be true. But I saw him deliver a speech. Um, in Glasgow in 2012 and I was properly blown away by him I was like fucking hell like this guy has got a real presence about him yeah I mean there's an electricity you, you know, there's a real energy around people yeah. you know in these positions usually you know I think here is a decent guy his values are sound I think I think there's a lot of work to be done you know I, obviously I, I was heavily involved in Angela Rayner's campaign hmm. you know I think um there's a foil there, you know, so like Angela is someone who grew up in poverty, uh, was a teenage mum. She has a severely premature child with disabilities. She um, had to basically, she worked as a carer, minimum wage, became a trade union official, grew up through the, the movement of the trade unions mm. and built her, and then was eventually seen as, you know, built up her confidence enough to stand as a candidate for parliament. So she came up that kind of route, you know, so like I was, I was involved in her campaign She's able to speak to working class people in a very compelling way. And I've been out campaigning with her in places like Drygate down in Deniston, in places like in Springburn. You know, there's a connection there that's really good. And she gets the the, diffi- the practical difficulties that a lot of people are facing in their lives. You know, that kind of empathy is, you can't really buy that, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, like I say, there might be people in the party whose, you know, intentions are sound but there's also a need for that kind of credibility as well. I think people at Angela do bring that. Here, I think, you know, I want him to win because I don't want Boris Johnson to be Prime Minister. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, Would I think... Would there be much difference because he kind of seems to... No, I, I, think, I think even the worst Labour Party is miles ahead of the of the best Tory party. He would you, hope so. You know, so I genuinely believe that. And I, I supported Keir Starmer at the time of the leadership election. I endorsed his campaign... I want him to win the next election. I want to, I'll be campaigning for the Labour Party, obviously, to win that election and eager to see him become Prime Minister. Um, do I want to do I want to achieve policy improvements to the party's position at the present? Yes. You know, do I want to constructively improve things? Yes. Mm. You know, I'm wanting to work in that regard. You know, I think there's been a lot of calculations made that might not be necessarily accurate around, you know, needing to concede certain things to you know, so-called red wall seats. I don't think the analysis is sound on that. I think actually what we need is to provide a compelling, motivating vision for the future mm-hmm. progress of this country and, you know, to give those working class people the control that they wanted when they voted for Brexit. It's not about pandering to Tory narratives or accepting these bullshit ideas about bigotry and culture wars and all this stuff. It's about actually circumventing all of that with a clear socialist narrative. Mm. If if the social if if the left retreats, the right will shape the the narrative. It's always happened. If you if you have a combination of failing living standards and a retreat of robust left wing cases for anti racism, for solidarity, for building institutions to collectively push back against the people who really exploit the working class, which is the millionaires, the billionaires, the people that have ripped everybody off, tax evaders, all the people that have been given the corrupt bungs from the Tory party, etc. If we're not building that case to push it back against all of that, then, you know, that's the perfect conditions for the far right to flourish because they start to say, 
see all these immigrants, they're the people that are ripping you off. Yeah. See all this. That's where it starts to seed itself. You know, so we can't afford to retreat. Um, but also I would say that, you know, there's there's got to be a recognition and a respect for how people voted as well. And I think that's possibly something that Labour failed to 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 recognise both in Scotland and in England. I think we need to show that we are on the side of people who voted yes as much as people who voted no. We're on the side of people who voted leave as much as remain. Mm-hmm. And that's been something we've found ourselves well, I mean, out of, out of sync, sync the, with. The recognition of, of how people voted, I don't know if, if they have ignored it completely because remember the mugs cracking down on immigration. Oh, yeah. well, yeah, I mean... So, I mean, can they, they have played up to that right-wing narrative as well. Well, there's a, there's a theory in Labour called Blue Labour, which is basically that working-class people often are socially conservative and they might be left economically, but they're, they're, they're right socially. So, for example, you might get a lot of working-class people who are anti-abortion, mm. who, who are um, anti-immigration, you know. And to be perfectly frank with you, I've knocked a lot of doors in Glasgow where that's been expressed to me. Uh, you know, yeah, I think Glasgow so, gets Glasgow try, try in Scotland in general tries to give itself a hall pass oh, when it is profoundly racist in yeah. parts. Now I, I oh, absolutely, you know, and but there's this whole we jovial. What but, we like, we're the Scots. And it's like, well, yeah. these issues exist up here as well. Yeah, I mean, I remember this mug, and it was a, it was ridiculous. Obviously, yeah. some some fanny in the Labour headquarters must have just stuck all these slogans on mugs without realizing. Like why would you? you know, just ta- it's literally taking like strap lines from different manifestos or yeah. whatever and just stuck them on mugs, and Aye. nobody thought. So why would you have a mug with that on it? See if any of these will stick. You know, maybe like defending our NHS or something might be a better thing to find a mug. You know, it was, it was probably a mug with that on it, but they just didn't realise yeah. what they were doing. I think, yeah. However, I would make the point. I don't believe there should be an uncontrolled immigration system. You no, know, me too. I, I, you know, but I just, I just think taking that in isolation was nuts. You know, I, as if it was a virtuous <laughs> thing. It's like it's just. What I think we we want to have is a system that is fair and ju- has rooted in justice for people. You know, for example, that's not what the Tory system's all about. You know, it's basically about letting millionaires move in and, and set up shop without any restrictions. But people who have actually fled war, violence, trauma are are basically hounded for years. Yeah, let's you know. talk. Let's talk. You mentioned constructive improvement for the inside, and you also mentioned Angela Rayner having this authentic empathy due to her shared experiences with the working class, like. You know, she she's lived it, she's experienced it. Has your experience? Because I'm kind of jumping here, but you're on universal credit after, obviously, after after leaving uh, your position as an MP. Has that solidified like your understanding of what your constituents are going through, but also your desire to to stay there and to help make things better? Because like, even stuff like the removing the twenty quid a week that is that can be catastrophic for people that are relying on that. Yeah, um, I mean. Where I'm sitting now, I feel that it's been probably one of the best things that's happened to me. Mm. Although that seems perverse to say so. Just because in order to, to be in any sort of leadership position in, in the community as an MSP, I don't have a lot of power, but I've, you know, to the extent any MP or MSP has power, mm-hmm. but unless you're in government, but like, but it certainly gives me an ability to, to recognise things I didn't before. I think you get yourself into a false sense of security in society. You know, I grew up, you know, I had some hard years as a kid growing up when my dad was unemployed, made redundant from shipyard and stuff like that. My dad, my mum had to look after my grand when she was dying. You know, there was years when we were financially challenged growing up, mm-hmm. but I had a fairly comfortable upbringing. You know, I you know couldn't fault it really. 
um, went to a decent, you we went to the same school, obviously, Turnbull yeah. High School. It's not the boss school in the world, you know. Uh, and, you know, came out of that school, went to uni and graduated and then got a graduate job with a decent company, uh, working in the shipyards, mm. uh, and then got elected to be an MP, you know. So I had a fairly stable pathway through my teens and 20s, you know. Um, not wealthy or privileged by any, any stretch, but just fairly standard, you know, lower middle class probably, yeah. slash up, you know, sort of quasi working class, I suppose you could say. I mean, my definition of working class is if you rely on a salary to live, then you're yeah. working class. And that's a lot, a lot of people in, in Britain have failed to recognise that's the fundamental definition of working class is. So if you stop getting your paycheck within two months, most people are going to be in significant financial distress. Mm. Right? So that was the the wake up call for me even though i became an mp you know people were like oh well, you're on like 70 odd grand a year you know i was like well i wasn't spending the money uh, you know what i was doing with it was like trying to overpay my mortgage a bit to uh, what i was doing was helping out my mum you know what it's I not would, just going into stocks and shares and isas and yeah you know i wasn't building up a huge amount of savings yeah plus i was actually like it's expensive being an mp as well you know it's not cheap you're flying up and down to london every week and stuff and actually when you go to things with people you're expected to pay for everything yeah you know what i mean so it's actually not that easy you know yeah. in the sense that the and actually it's equivalent salary to like a high school head teacher you know so when you put it in context it's not a huge amount of money People that rip the, the piss out of it are like people like Jacob Rees Mogg who have side hustles that are earning the millions of pounds a year. Yeah. You know, so that I, I don't have every, I actually don't have an issue at all with the salaries. You know, uh, I, I don't necessarily think it should be more, but I don't think they're actually the levels that are fairly probably equivalent to what it, the, the going rate for the job would be, in mm -hmm. my opinion. But, um, but what I would say is certainly when I stopped being an MP after two years, um, it, it was it was psychologically a blow. Obviously, I mentioned before how much I put into it, so like, I was pretty much in grief, you know, for losing the seat. Went it was basically that went I didn't come out of my bedroom for like a week, you know. I was like totally yeah, fucked. Yeah, understandable. You know, you, so you're like, also but, probably thinking, right, I'll have a wee bit of downtime, and then I'm just I'll go, I'll go into something else, not realizing the world is going to grind to a halt. I mean, that was unfortunate, you know. Like, that could I, mean, be I, did so, I did I did some work for it, Angela. I, I was in a paid job with her campaign, uh, and then I, that finished up, and I. I didn't have anything else come up because obviously I'm in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. So I came to a point where I was like, shit, you know, like this is the first time since like I had an evening times paper round that I've not actually had a paid job. Yeah. You know, so what am I going to do? And I thought, you know what? Um, well, there's no shame in signing on. Absolutely uh, not. You know, because I've been, I'm the one that's been busy telling folk as an MP that this is perfectly fine and, and these helping are, them. These are why we pay taxes to put them into these pot, this pot to have this safety net to, yeah. to catch you, so to speak. Yeah, and I realised, you know, well, I did get a redundancy payout, but that was getting burned through. Was it like two months' wages, three months' yeah, it's, wages? It's two months' wages, you know, so it's like, I don't know, it came out about eight grand or something like that. You know? People so, strongly assume that if you're an MP that you're kind of set for, for life or for a long time, but I mean, you don't have you, to have been there I mean, for a certain I mean, period. I mean, you would be if you had been there for like 10, 15 years because you would end up building up a huge package, yeah. you know, but I wasn't, I was only there for two years. Uh, and what happened is, uh, what, what, what happened basically was that was burning through because I had a mortgage to pay, I had stuff, I had expenses, you know, I had, like things, a car to pay, you know, and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, so that doesn't stop, you know what I mean? And uh, so I got to I, I got to a point where I, I realised that was necessary to do it and, I, and obviously it was picked up on by the media and stuff like that and I thought, well, you know what, it's important to make the point that there's no shame in it and, and also uh, 
that if most people actually, even if you're an MP or whatever, you're only ever two months away from actually looking down the barrel of debt and stuff yeah. like that, you know. So, so I thought there's no shame in people doing that. But the, the biggest problem is people don't claim for stuff that they're entitled to, and there's billions of pounds goes unclaimed in this country mm. every year, particularly older people. Uh, so they see it as shameful. To, I, there's a, that I you know, feel like there's a mindset where people see themselves not as impoverished. You know that phrase: see themselves not as impoverished and yeah, taken advantage of, but as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. It's like yeah, I mean that's what it goes back to, like this idea of ego. You know, like I was saying, you know. It's easy when you've got like you're a graduate and you've had this like good prestigious job to think, oh, I'm not going to get and sully myself with that. <laughs> you know, I'll get something. And I, I think there was a realization that that's that's bullshit, and it's partly why we need to have these institutions. Like a lot of people, you know, you see these conditionings that go on with like Channel Four documentaries about Benefit Street oh, and, and that kind of poverty porn stuff that goes on. There's been a whole kind of sub subconscious conditioning that it's somehow a, a neg like a, a thing to be ashamed of. Yeah, and that's sometimes really keen to push back on. Um, obviously, it was tough being stuck in a flat alone, uh, isolated. You know, lost a job I, I felt was more like a vocation or a, a thing I was, you know, absolutely completely invested in. You know, did have suicidal thoughts. You know, my mental health hit rock bottom. Um, you know, felt to an extent it was humiliation. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of really uncharitable comments about, uh, you know, go back to your point about, you know, people being unkind. Uh the response publicly was was a lot of positivity, but there was also extremely nasty stuff said as well. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of Schadenfreude to the max, which was completely unjustified in my yeah. view. I would never do that to someone else, you know, even though I've personally dislike a lot of people in politics. I think you a know, lack but... of class when you were quite clearly giving your all. I mean, if you were somebody who was coming in and taking the piss, then you could maybe understand, but yeah. it's, it's fair to say they absolutely weren't. So then that schadenfreude was really uncalled for. Yeah, I mean, there were some constructive things I, I focused on. Like, for example, I, I, I'd done some work with asylum seekers as an MP because, you know, my area had a lot of asylum seekers mm -hmm. in it. And I was offered a, a temporary job with a charity called Asylum Seeker Housing in Glasgow. Um, and their project was like all these people had been decanted into hotels during the pandemic. They didn't have access to money to spend on anything. They they eight pound a week living in these hotels. They were given full board food, um, which food was stuff absolute that, shit though. Ah, but they couldn't eat it because yeah. you know they can't eat a fried breakfast when you know they're from Eritrea or somewhere like that <laughs> where they can't physically digest it. Yeah, you know, or culturally inappropriate or whatever else. You know, so there was a powder keg which obviously culminated in that tragedy at the Park Inn Hotel. Yeah. Um, so I was working with a charity at the time. Our project was basically we got a grant to get loads of smartphones. Uh, uh, we got a grant to get loads of smartphones and my job was to like pr pr create almost like a kind of rough and ready app for the phones. Right, okay. So all the information people would need to get help from like solicitors, charities, Red Cross, um, etc., um, got it translated into 17 different languages, nice. programmed up these phones, and then we got them distributed into the hotels and to the houses so people could access. We got prepaid SIM cards in them yeah. so people could get data, stuff, stuff like that. So it was a little project that was fairly low level, you know, with pocket money, yeah. but it was something to keep you going. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was very rewarding. Yeah, and then obviously started doing some work um, with Peter Kraken on the creation of this un un unofficial pilot for safe consumption or overdose prevention which kind of kicked off in September last year, um, which which has proven to be really useful, you know, really mm. productive because it kind of proved that actually all the sort of scaremongering about it being illegal was actually nonsense. Yeah. So, um, and it's moved the debate on in Scotland as well. So there was things I was doing to keep myself focused, you know, 
And then obviously building up to late last year, there was the talk about, you know, there's the selections for the Scottish Parliament and, you know, you're going to go for it. So you had to prepare a campaign to campaign mm-hmm. amongst the members of the party in Glasgow to get support. Uh, unfortunately, they, they overwhelmingly endorsed me to be one of the lead candidates. You know? Something I did want to ask. I mean, you men- you've mentioned previously being 10 years old and you're bed in York Hill Children's Hospital watching the opening ceremony yeah. of the Scottish Parliament as you're walking through the door for the first for your first time was that kind of in your mind how did that feel and also how does it sort of compare to to Westminster in terms of how things are done um, I know that's a very tough question it's uh, it's I mean, I don't, you know, it's a great privilege. You know, it's a great privilege. It's surreal, obviously. It's always been surreal for me. You know, I never expected to be able to do this kind of thing. Yeah. I, I was a wild card in 2017. I probably, in an ordinary election, would never get selected as the candidate. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it was just I was a wild card picked by the party, put in, wasn't expected to win. I was like, just take the hit for the team sort of thing. Won it, proved that I could do the job, I think, to the members of the party. Obviously lost the seat, but was able to then the members of the party were like, "You did a good job, Paul. You deserve to get another crack at it," mm-hmm. and put me back in. So you know, I felt energized, you know, grateful going back in, but also kind of went in with a bit more focus about you know what's the point of this whole thing. Yeah. You know, it's easy to get seduced by all the bullshit in politics. You know, whose party are you buying for this, or who you you know all that kind of crap. You know, I was just like, you know what, it's all bullshit. You know, like. I'm just grateful to be here to be able to do something useful. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all it is for me. I feel know? like wh- while I don't, I hold, I do hold Westminster and Westminster politics in quite some contempt for reasons that I hardly need to elaborate upon. Well, the I mean, you make a good point. If I were an, an MP right now, ironically, if I'd kept my seat, it would be even more frustrating. Yeah. Because at, at the end of the day, if you're in an opposition at Westminster, you can't do anything because it's a Tory majority. Every single vote is a fait accompli. Yeah. At least at Holyrood, the way the Parliament's com- composed, um, you can actually do deals to get things done. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, so it, it's actually more useful to be there, probably, in that what sense. I, what I was going to say, and oh, I, need, I actually need to tell you this story about the time after I was in with you, I went back the next day and went for a tour and nearly get flung out. <laughs> um, I'll tell you why. Is that, it was for some pure trivial, but apparently it's against the rules. Or, right. or, well, against the, the tour guide's preference and what I was going to say was while I do hold Westminster in some contempt when you walk through the doors you are overawed you're like fucking hell because it's it's iconic the history just everything it's it's an incredible place I mean it, it is I mean for the first I mean for the first couple of months it, 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 it blows you away you know you're surreal going into this kind of it is nuts. Hogwarts sort of palace Aye. but what you increasingly start to realise is it's a terrible workplace um, because you're stuck in a wee tiny box room in an attic Aye. as an office and it's the plumbing doesn't work. There's damp everywhere. The building's falling to pits. You know it yeah. needs billions of pounds spent on it, and and the workspace itself is, is poor. Um, at least there's at least Holyrood's been kind of even though it's not a grand building by any stretch, it it's designed for the modern workplace. Mm. You know at least you get space. Yeah. I'd actually say the chamber. To be perfectly honest, I think there's pros and cons. I haven't seen Holyrood in all its glory yet because the social distancing and stuff. So yeah. I haven't seen everybody packed in, but. I think the atmosphere in the House of Commons is hard to beat just in terms of that like it's like the difference between a, 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 like a pub and like a lecture theatre you know what I mean like just there's a certain buzz you get from like being in an atmosphere which I think is hard to beat at, at, at certain points but also just the shouting and bawling can be really off-putting Aye. as well there's probably a, there's probably elements where 
Westminster at its best if he can stand up in that maelstrom and nail a speech. You know, you, you know, it's you know, it's, it's quite good. But whereas in Holyrood, it feels more like you're standing up to give a lecture. Yeah. You know, I, I guess I guess there's pros and cons to it. It's just a different culture and a different atmosphere. Right, well, the point I was but, going to make is that the fact that you've cut your teeth in there, you're now going into the Scottish... Because any normal person going in for the first time, even in the Scottish Parliament, would be overawed to a degree. But you're going in... It's like you've... You came through the ranks at Man United, and then you've now come to play at Dundee United, and you're no, you're no, you're no intimidated by the Tannadice crowd because you've dealt with Old Trafford. That's kind of the analogy I would use. The uh, the two things I was going to say was, uh, if you can deal with if you can deal with the House of Commons, whatever, I great. But I just remember being absolutely fucking incandescent with rage because I'm standing what, and I'm sitting there watching people on. WhatsApp and Messenger and Facebook and stuff. I can tolerate Twitter because I know people were gauging reactions. People in, um, sitting behind, can see all the Tories on their phones because I'm directly behind them. There was Tory MPs who were barking like dogs anytime Labour or the SNP uh, tried to speak. Uh, and they were, I remember John Berkow saying, <laughs> you, are, you are deliberately uh, obstructing democracy because yeah. the people at home cannot hear what the opposition are saying. So all this is happening, right? People barking like dogs. People looking steaming drunk. Like. I mean, there was points where I was tempted to. I mean, I'm, well, I wanted I, to jump over. Well, I mean, there are moments where you're sitting there going, "I could just, I could just, I could just, get, I could actually just throw a punch here." Aye. You know, because it does get the provocation is extreme. You know, and there was certain people, and it, the worst, most disgusting stuff I saw was women, women who were MPs in certain seats in particularly in North England, like places where like Joe Cox had been killed. Yeah. Um, the neighbouring seat, the MP had a panic attack because Tories were actually openly calling for her to be like basically, um, like dealt with, you know, uh, See, so because of Brexit and stuff like traitor, calling her traitor and all that. You know, Nazi politics. You know, so like you were seeing this play out, and I, I was like, this is you know, I, 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 you know, the stress that people. Aye. It wasn't so bad for me because I could just I had a, a seat that had voted Remain. You know, and I was like just reflecting what they wanted, but see, see people that had that kind of tension between what Aye. their constituency voted for and what they believed in, or what they knew was in the best interest of the country. That was terrible for them. That know? that time when I was sitting there, right. So what I was going to say was I was leaning against this, the gold bar, like because I'm just sitting watching. I'm in there for hours, and you get your phone taken off you. So it's like a gold railing, yeah. And I'm leaning on it, and this guy came up to me, and he's like. Will you show respect for the part? Like the part, and I was like, mate, f- first of all, fuck up. Yeah, Second yeah. of all, I was like, you look like the guy off the beef eater gin bottle. And <laughs> third, who are you talking to? I've, I've to show respect. I was like, shut up, mate. So that, that I just came away a lot of the human. Uh, yeah, the culture in Westminster is very deferential. Like people open doors for you and kind of bounce scrape. It's quite, it's quite weird, you know. And they actually have an app. It's a bit like Tinder where they learn the MPs' names off by heart. Really? So the doormen all have to know your name and your face. Mm. So they actually have a, a weird app that they've created where it's like a it's like a sporkle quiz where a, a face will come up and there's four they options and you have it. to guess and they, they, they have this wee app so they can, it helps them memorise everybody's names. They can fuck it's weird, off. Because at that time to see we were standing in the the lobby as well and we're waiting for this black rod thing to come oh yeah and then I get I sat down in a chair and a guy's like you're a dis came over to me he's like you're a disgrace show respect for this parliament and I was like mate shut up I've got a right to be here and it's like, I'm the disgrace well you're going make way for the black rod I'm like you're a bunch of fannies man it's no Hogwarts the, the thing the next day was um, I was went for the tour and we're in the house of lords and the, the tour guide was just pure she just pure loved 
the government. She loved the Queen and loved the Parliament. But she, I kind of made the point about how we should abolish the House of Lords. And she was going, no, no, you've got Stephen Lawrence's mum and like one other person. Well, I'm sure lots of people would want to elect Stephen Lawrence's mum. Aye, aye, exactly. You know? And the thing is, like, no, I, I think you're right. There's a there's an institutional deference there. Uh, I mean, Berko, to be fair to him, she was, was a wee bootlicker that that tour guide. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot culturally. It's ingrained, you know. It's an establishment thing. Mm. Um, but I think, I think it, it, you you realise how insidious it is when you're at, at the heart of it, mm. you know. And what you also realise is when you're so close to power, how actually unremarkable these people are. Yeah, you know, like when you see them face to face, there's not much going on there. They're just blackguards. You know, there are people who came through public schools, privilege, had a sense of entitlement, and and they've managed to pull it off. You know, but also, and that's actually something that frustrates me because a lot of working class people don't realise the power they've got um, if they were to organise properly. But I think, um, I think also what you realise is that these systems are designed for an era that nobody ever voted or endorsed for. No one voted for first past the post. You know, so it's weird that we're stuck with it. But I think. There's an opportunity to push reforms. The the Parliament has reformed a lot, even though it's still, I mean, still a long way to go in that sense. But there are clear objectives: proportional representation, introducing a democratic second chamber, like a Senate. Uh, you know, there's they're the basis for a lot of other reforms we need to do in the UK. Mm. And I think it's about understanding and unpacking these positions about how do we build cooperation how do we build democratic legitimacy and i think a lot of the tension we've got in this country is because p- people aren't or political parties are failing to offer a more imaginative way forward mm-hmm. you know and that's why we're stuck in this kind of impasse we are in scotland at the moment um i think whether you like it or not we've going to we're going to have to have a relationship with other parts of the uk we're going to have to have very close and cooperative relationships so it's about whether you fracture it or whether you evolve it that's that's what I'm about, you know. Mm. So uh, I think there's a lot of anger, and I can understand the, the impetus and the desire to fracture. But I think um, what we need to do is build alliances. Um, bearing in mind, the majority of people in England want progressive governments uh, to to try and achieve that, you know. So we well, need think... to we need to think a, a way forward that's imaginative and clear. You know, the, the the terms of the debate have moved on. Um, the the opportunity for change and reform is ripe. Um, but it's about confronting it with with a more imaginative way forward, a more inclusive way forward than one that actually builds alliances with other people. I mean, I think a lot of people in Scotland resonated when Andy Burnham came out and was demanding better treatment for Manchester and was like saying the government's treatment of the, these cities and stuff was disgraceful. Um, I think there's alliances to be made there uh, and there's a common cause to be created. So I'm kind of bizarrely optimistic about the future. I think I think reasons on our side, I think... Time's on our side. I think dem- demographics are on our side. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. There's a, definitely a lot more to talk about, and we could never break it down just in this one hour. Sure. But, um, aye, I think I think people will have will have a clear idea of kind of where you stand on things. Whether that will match up with what the Scottish public want, time will tell, I suppose. But one thing I think people can, I will say, is people can can rely on you to do a, a good and honest job and give a, a solid account of. Of what individuals need in your constituency, um, but yeah, it's it's, very it's a very very complex conversation. You get you get um, dealt a hand, and I think 
if you approach it in a, in a with a degree of humility, which you kind of inevitably do after getting the kind of ups and downs you've had after the last few years, I think there's things I just want to constructively move forward. You know, I'm just looking at opportunities where I can move the dial in the right direction for people. Uh, you know, there's a couple of things I want to try and achieve in this part in the next few months, which will hopefully do things like that. For example, something quite simple like getting free bus passes for asylum seekers. Mm-hmm. Um, believe it or not, there was a situation a couple of months ago where they were cut off from all financial support for a few weeks. Um, because of the home office, basically, where they were screw up with the home office's cards that they get prepaid cards. Right. There was a situation where one guy had to walk 10 miles in Glasgow to get emergency dental treatment in total agony because he couldn't afford a bus pass, uh, a bus a bus fare. So, uh, you know, that was just one example of someone I thought, that's not right, we need to fix that. It would literally cost a couple of hundred grand a year and it's something we could fix right now. Mm-hmm. And it would actually transform a lot of people's lives. Think about it, th- there's like three or 4,000 asylum seekers in Glasgow at any one time, um, maybe at a max 5,000. Um, if you were to give them free bus travel around the city, it would transform their quality of life because yeah. they're cut off from their friends. They're not able. You know, they're stuck in the worst private lets in the city, mm-hmm. you know, chucked up in all parts of town. Easter House, Govan, they can't connect with their, their friends, etc. Um, they they can't socialise. I think just something like that would ra- dramatically change their quality of life, and that's something I'm going to try and push for. It's not a dramatic big idea; it's just a little improvement that would actually have a big impact. Incremental improvements is how you really, I suppose, make great change, and it's never going to be one overnight dramatic t- turnaround. So, I think yeah, and, and I think it's actually unfair and and actually quite dangerous to lead people on by saying, you know, ah, oh, bang, if we change the flag above Edinburgh Castle, everything's going to be perfectly fine by default. You know. We've still got the same problems of exploitation, land ownership, millionaires exploiting the country. The the whole pattern of capitalism is still going to be there. You know, it's not. We need to fix a lot of things anyway. Mm. So there's no time like the present to crack on with it. Whether it's something simple as just looking at who are genuinely most destitute people in this in this in this in a city right now, something practical right now that could change their lives for the better. Good, let's do it now. Or for example the situation in Scotland where every six and a half hours someone's dying of a drug-related preventable death. There's practical changes we can do now um, to move the dial in the right direction. And to be honest with you, I'm well up for picking fights with the British government over these things. That's, That's the thing. what I want to hear, but, finally. But, but it's clear, you know, it's clear. You know, like, uh, there. I mean, John Smith famously said, former Labour Party leader, that there's two forces sawn away at the legs that support the UK and the idea of the UK. Which is, you know, obviously SNP's whole point is to, to do that. But the Tories, in their way that they actually play up to the villain, constantly antagonising, provoking people, um, that's the other side of the equation that's that's causing the toxicity. So, you know, if you're looking at ways in which we can build alliances to win improvements for people, such as, you know, improvements to drug policy to save lives, mm-hmm. these are things where we need to build alliances to say, you know what, no, you're not fucking on... And we're going to do this anyway, by the way. What are you going to do? Send the tanks in. Aye, you know, challenge you. these people. You know, and this is the thing that's kind of frustrated me with the Scottish government because for all the rhetoric, actually, when it comes down to the crunch, they're actually quite conservative about just pushing it. You know, and I'm like, let's go for it then. Mm. You know, what's what are they going to do? You know, um, let's take it to court. Let's have it out. You know, these are, these. Uh, who, you know, reason, evidence and like ethics are on our side here. You know, goodwill is on our side mm-hmm. here. We can go in and win these fights. You know, we're just cowering in the face of this power that doesn't need to be confronted. You know, there's other ways to win these battles, you know, and to deliver improvements for people. And I think that's where I'm I'm at, you know, with my attitude going into this parliament now, 
is that's where we need to be. You know, whether it's about taking back control of the bus companies in Glasgow, improving public transport so that working class people have greater access to their city, uh, whether it's giving free uh, bus travel to the you know, asylum seekers who are engineered to live in abject poverty by the system in the Home Office, mm. whether it's um, improving the situation for drug users by saying, you know what, the law uh, as applied here can be circumvented and we'll do that and we'll work mm -hmm. out an ingenious way to do it, which I'm hoping to do. Um, these are just a couple of ideas that can move things in the right direction, you know. So I think, you know, if people want to re realise that if there's something you've seen in your community that you want to fix, that you've recognised something that needs sorted out, that, you know, this isn't right, there's alliances to be built with MSPs, uh, uh, you know, and MPs to try and achieve those changes, you know, get in touch with people. We're not some sort of like class that sits above everyone else and has all the solutions. Genuinely, most of the campaigns I've actually worked on that have been the most successful and, and most rewarding have been ones that have, someone's came to you with a concept or an idea and said, this is something we could really do to move things forward and improve things. And you're like, absolutely brilliant. I'll, I'll basically run with this in Parliament. You know, I'll take the ball and run for the, run for the trial line yeah. you know with with the ball you've given me you know that's kind of uh, that's kind of the idea you know and I think that's what the best that's what our democracy should be about it's a feedback loop you know mm -hmm. that's the whole point of it you know you're taking the pulse of the community constantly you're recognising people come to you with problems you're like well that's clearly a symptom of something that's going wrong with policy somewhere or funding or whatever it might be so that's something that obviously needs fixed that's the whole purpose of it you know if we didn't have that communication then the thing dries up mm. you know what I mean so you know, I think that's what it's all about for me. And one of the good things out of these referendums has been it's engaged people in politics. But I think there's also that sense that there's powerlessness there and there doesn't need to be, you know. So we need more people getting active in politics. Like I said, don't just disengage from a political party because you don't agree with everything it's saying or its leaders saying or you don't like the look of it. There's alliances to be built with people who are either members of the party or activists. And also even just if you're not a party member or a party activist, you can build those alliances with MP MSPs or campaigns in the party anyway. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, they're, they're all there to be done. Yeah, well, these, these are the fights that you've listed are ones that are worth being fought uh, and hopefully alliances can be built to to push these forward. This has been a pleasure, as always. Uh, hopefully have you back in at some point soon to be talking about the drug reform in, in Scottish society. Um, Looking forward to it. Many other things. Good luck with everything that's coming up. Where are you off to now? Holyrood? Cheers. Well, I'm, I'm off to uh, well, I'm on recess at the moment, so I'm not a couple of weeks to back to, to Holyrood, and then I'm off this afternoon to discuss with the non-government bills unit at, at the Scottish Parliament about creating a bill that would help to basically effectively um, enable um, public health interventions mm. um, that could include um, you know, looking at overdose prevention, etc. So, Excellent. Yeah. I think that's something most rational, forward-thinking people would be behind. Yeah, um, so I'm also hopefully... off to visit the Courtyard Pantry in Wester Common uh, this afternoon at three o'clock. They've created a sort of food pantry. Um, so it's not a food bank, but what it is, is it's basically a subscription service where you can pay a fee every week. It's like three quid or five quid. Right, okay. And it gives you access to up to £15 worth of food. All right. Um, so it's an idea of alleviating food poverty, but yeah. it's also plugging into like locally grown produce and stuff like that. So people are getting fresh food that's grown locally. Nice. And it, so it's not just about dealing with food poverty, it's actually building a more sustainable sort of food supply in the community. Mm -hmm. So that's up in Postle Park. So nice. some interesting ideas out there uh, that are worth plugging into. Well, as the world gets moving again, um, good luck with everything hopefully we'll see some some positive change I've no doubt we will yeah. uh, with you behind it and thank you for listening to us talking about um, 
politics, I suppose, politics and life. And we'll yeah. be back with another episode of Leathered soon. Cheers. Cheers. Leathered was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine. And for more information, go to thebiglight.com. If you like this podcast, please check out all our other series, including Talk Media. You could start a fight in an empty house. Talking Derry Girls, Brave Your Day, The Tartan Noir Show, Double Scotch, Great Scott, Trust Me I'm a Leader, Unearthed, A Sonic Hug and Old School. All on the Big Light, Scotland's podcast network. From the Big Light Studio.